This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, now last week, I watched this movie. Okay, and uh, my family didn't want to watch it with me. They were all too scary cat. Okay, so it's actually a horror movie. When I borrowed it, actually, I didn't realize it was uh, going to be so scary. I don't usually like watching horror movies. Any of you like watching horror movies? Oh, okay, there are a few people here. Okay. And actually, personally, for me, I don't like watching horror movies. And you know why I don't like watching horror movies? Because I don't like being scared, right? I don't know. Why do people like being scared? But I don't like being scared. So I watched this movie and half of it, I was fast forwarding it, which is one of the good things that you can do when you're boring your own show, right? But actually, when you think about it, fear is sometimes a good thing, right? Being scared is sometimes a good thing. So, you know, when you look at all the warnings on the cigarette packs, they're all really scary pictures. You know, when you go to 7-Eleven, you're buying your soft drink and you look up all the cigarette packs, these are to discourage you from buying the packs of cigarettes and smoking, right? So fear is actually a good thing, you know, they show you deformed babies, mouth cancer, throat cancer, and it's trying to tell you, don't smoke because this is what might happen to you. So fear is not always a negative emotion. You know, being scared is not always a negative emotion. Fear can be a positive emotion. So fear teaches me not to pet growling dogs, right? Okay? Fear teaches me not to pick up scary-looking snakes, right? And fear teaches me not to stand too close to the edge. Now, in today's passage, really, the whole mood of uh, chapter 58, uh, sorry, chapter 59 and uh, chapter 63 is not just logic and facts and details, but really it's like a poem. And there's lots of imagery which brings fear into us. Now, before we get into the text itself, it's very important for us to see how it fits within the whole flow of Isaiah. I think that as we've been looking at Isaiah, two main things really jump out of us. One is that God's people repeatedly sin and rebel and are disobedient against God. They can't save themselves. But God comes into history, comes into the picture, and He saves through His servant. And this servant does two things, right? Uh, The servant, the next slide, he brings forth justice into the world to deal with sin. And at the same time, he saves people from sin by offering himself as a substitute who suffers on behalf of the sinner. And all this is done by God. All this is done by God's initiative. Nothing of man, freely given, of no charge, and of no cost. Now today, actually, before our projector died, we were actually meant to watch uh, a 10-minute short video on Isaiah. You've seen it before, but I thought we were going to watch it again, but we didn't get a chance because the projector doesn't work. But if you remember the next slide, okay, you've got lots of slides today. Okay, so uh, you can click twice. Um, You can actually see that we are at the last part of the book of Isaiah now, from chapter 56 to chapter 66. And if you can actually see, there's a uh, what, what I call the hamburger structure, right? There are parallels between the beginning and the end 
the not so beginning and the not so end and, and the middle part. Okay, so it's like a hamburger structure. So today we're going to be looking at chapter fifty-nine and chapter sixty-three. Okay, and and basically the why it's seen in this structure, this hamburger structure or this pyramid structure, which is shown in the video, which you hopefully will see next week if the projector works, is is that thematically the last part and the beginning. Let's talk about similar things and then, and then so on and so forth. There's a structure to it. So today that's why we are looking at chapter 59 and chapter 63 because in terms of topic and theme, they're saying basically the same thing. Okay, so let's look at what it says there in God's Word and what it's really talking about now that we understand the background and the structure of what we're looking at. Okay, so you understand where we're at now? Okay, so turn to me to chapter 59. Okay, turn with me to chapter 59. Uh, you got it in front of you? And we're going to look at verse 15b to 17. Okay, and the, and the words here are very important. The, the Lord looked and he was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. Now, right at the very beginning here, uh, the topic is of God as the judge. And you know, the first thing we notice is how different God is as judge compared to human judges. Because you know, human judges, they tend to be, uh, when they're giving their ruling, they tend to be dispassionate, uh, 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 not allow uh, their emotions to come into the decision. You know, they're supposed to be detached and unemotional. But if you look at this passage here, God is displeased when he sees injustice. Uh, the Holman Bible actually says he was uh, offended, right? He's personally offended when he sees there is no injustice. There's no justice in the world when he sees injustice. Now, why is it God as judge is so different from human judges? Why is he personally displeased and offended when he sees injustice? I think it's because the character of God is that he is our creator He is our maker. He made the world. He cares for it. And when we sin, we sin against his creation. We sin against him. So in Psalm chapter 51, which you see up here, uh, King David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Okay. And he reflects in Psalm 51 of his adultery against a married woman. So really, when you think about it, he sinned against Bathsheba's husband, right? But look at what he says. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and are justified when you judge. See, can you see how fundamentally... God is offended, right? God is displeased because when we sin and there is no justice, He takes it upon Himself, this sin and injustice. We are actually not just sinning against a neutral judge, but a God who gets angry because we're judging, we're, we're sinning against Him. Now in verse 16, it goes on to say, not only was He displeased that there was no justice, He saw that there was no one and He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. 
So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. Now you notice here, God was displeased and offended when he saw no justice. Now he is amazed and appalled that there is no one to intervene to bring justice. And so he brings justice himself. So many years ago, I, played, I was playing golf in Australia, and I happened to just join this stranger. Uh, I was playing my father, and he was a judge in the courts in Australia. So, you know, he was quite a friendly guy. We were playing golf, and we were just chatting away. And what he told me shocked me. He said to me that if his own daughter was raped or molested, and if she didn't have a strong case against the rapist or molester, he would hesitate to ask her to go to court. Right? The word he used was he would be reluctant for her to go to court. So I said, why? Why would you be reluctant for your own daughter to go to court if she'd been raped or molested? And he said, because, you know, the defense team would dig up all sorts of bad things and say all sorts of bad things in court against her, that the, the, the defense team would try to smear her character. And in the end, if she didn't have a strong case, the, the rapist or molester still might not be convicted. And I said to him, I said, but that's terrible, right? And he said, yes, you know, it's sad, but it's true. And he said that with a sense of deep resignation. But you see, God is not like that, right? God doesn't see injustice and say, well, you know, it's sad, but it's true. And you know, he's resigned to it. Instead, he says he will, by his own arm, bring judgment and justice into the world. He just doesn't sit back and say, well, that's just the way it is. But he goes on to say, in verse 17 onwards, right? He put on righteousness, right? Uh, sorry, he says that in verse 16. He saw that he was appalled that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. By his own arm, he achieved salvation for him. By his own righteousness, he sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and cloaked himself in zeal as in a cloak. Now I want you to notice here, there's a word that keeps being repeated in verse 16 and 17. Can you look at your Bibles and see what that word is? Okay, I'll give you a clue. Okay, it starts with R. Okay, the word righteousness. And what God is saying here is he's appalled at injustice. He takes action against injustice. He brings justice and he brings it with righteousness. Now, what does righteousness mean, right? Righteousness means that God judges rightly. He judges perfectly. He judges in such a sense where there is no miscarriage of justice, there is no wrongful arrest, there is no wrongful conviction, because in His righteousness, He will judge people. Now, this is very different again, right? So, if you notice the whole sermon, I'm going to be comparing things with our wrong understanding of God as the judge. But you know, the the popular image of, of, of justice today is like this, the lady justice, right? So all over the world, uh, in, this is the one in Hong Kong, actually, okay? So, you know, there's one in Hong Kong, in Japan, in America, in, in, in England, in Germany, in France, you'll find all these statues of the lady justice. And uh, the lady justice, basically, 
is like usually wearing a blindfold or, you know, she's carrying the scales of justice and she's carrying the sword of justice. But, but when you think about it, the reason why Lady Justice is blindfolded and carrying the scales of justice is because she's meant to be impartial and weigh up the evidence. Right? That's what the scales represent, you know, what the, the defense brings up, what the prosecutor brings up, what the evidence presents, and she's blind to, to, uh, to the people before her, and she weighs up the case. But the problem is that what that really means is justice in the world that we live in is not based on reality. It's really based on evidence, right? The scales are weighing up the arguments and the strengths of the prosecutor's case and the defense case. I mean, that's why many people say that uh, sometimes there is no justice because the rich can afford better justice than the poor because the rich person can afford the better lawyer, the better defense team, the bigger uh, amount of, uh, of, of, uh, of legal aid. Right? So God is not like Lady Justice. He doesn't judge blindly based on the evidence. He, ba- he, he judges based on righteousness, the reality of whether you have done right or wrong. And that's why it says there in verse 18, right? according to what they have done, so he will repay. Not according to what the court rules or what the prosecutor or the defense brings up. It is what is actually done, God will judge. And here we see that God is presented as a fearsome judge. That's why he's seen as putting the righteousness as his breastplate, the helmet of salvation on his head, the garments of vengeance, and he wrapped himself in zeal, right? In passion, as in a cloak. See, God here is pictured not as a mighty warrior fighting against Babylonians or Assyrians or military power, but he's actually fighting against sin and wickedness and injustice. So when you think about it, when you put all these pictures together just in these few verses, it's a scary picture, right? Because... You're, you're, you have an angry God who's displeased at injustice, who sees the reality of your sin perfectly based on righteousness, who's like this warrior who comes in judgment. Now, obviously, when we sort of see this picture, we're not really struck with fear, right? Because this is just like a, it is a figurine, right? <laughs> but I remember when I went to, uh, many years to visit my son studying in England, we, we went to Paris and Paris, uh, just the week before, had seen uh, some terrorist attacks. Some policemen had been stabbed just at the tourist sites which we went to. La. So when we went to the tourist sites, actually it wasn't a very pleasant experience because it was like under security lockdown and you had these policemen, right? And the policemen, just at these, exactly in these pictures, they always travel in teams of three. Okay? So the next picture. So... You know, when you see these sort of policemen, right? You don't go up to them and ask them where the toilet is, lah. Okay? Because they are radiating, they are radiating menace and fear, right? They've, they're covered in guns. They've got like multiple stuff all over themselves, bayonets, whatever, right? And, and, 
really, they're really scary. That's why when you go there, you, you like, okay, you, you, you enjoy the tourist sites, but you also feel a bit tense, right? Because you see these heavily armed men who are like masked and uh, unfriendly in many ways, some of them wearing sunglasses. And, and you, you know that, that they, they are very, very threatening to you if you do the wrong thing, if you say the wrong thing, and they're, they're very fearsome. And I think that's the picture that we're meant to get as we look at the description of God. God is angry. God judges righteously. He's like this warrior judge coming to judge sin and wickedness. He's warring against judgment, bringing judgment against sin. It goes on to say in verse 18 to 19, right? According to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He repay the islands their due from the west. People will fear the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. Now here we see that that these repeated words of the judgment that God brings. So according to what they have done, he will repay. He will bring wrath, retribution, he will repay. Now, why does he describe justice and judgment in that way? Why repay? Why retribution? These are all words of debt owed. Right? It's like, you've done something wrong, you need to repay. There's, there's retribution, there's payback that's required. I think that again, this is because we don't quite understand God's justice, right? We compare God's justice to our justice. But God's justice is very different. He is the creator. He is the maker of this world. When we sin and sin against His creation, when we sin against Him personally, there is a sense in which His righteousness requires repayment. His holiness requires repayment. See, for many people, Uh, I've spoken to them, I'm sure you've spoken to them too. They believe that they are okay with God because they've done more good things than bad things. I'm sure that we all have come across uh, people who think like that. Maybe you think like that right now, that you know, if you do more good things than bad things, oh, you can put up the slide, right? If you do more good things than bad things, then God will let you into heaven. Has anybody said that to you before? Ah, people have said that to me before. I'm a good person. You know, I've done more good things than bad things. But actually what is being pictured here is not more good things, right? The heavier good things than bad things and therefore God accepts me, right? Because if God's justice is about repayment, retribution, right? You owe God for all the sins and the wickedness and the wrongs that you've done. Then actually God's justice Oh, okay, the next one. It's more like a supermarket checkout counter, right? Because every time you sin, uh, the next slide, it's like you, you've got you've to pay for that particular sin. So you look carefully at me. Look carefully at me in chapter 59, right? That's exactly what he says. According to what they have done, so he will repay 
wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes, he will repay the islands they are due. That's, that's what it says. So every time we sin, it's like we owe God. It's like we have to pay God for that sin. There is a debt due to God. Now that's terrifying, right? Because it then means that it's not about outweighing the bad with the good that you've done in this life. It means that everything you've done wrong, God's righteous holiness requires the payment of the fine or the payment of justice. And therefore, the passage goes on to say that the repayment and the retribution will be to the islands from the west and from the rising of the sun. Now, this is written to the original audience of God's people in Israel, and they don't really have many islands. So for them, islands is like very far, very far away. Okay, And basically saying from the west to the rising of the sun. So where, where does the sun rise? The east, right? So from the east to the west, God is going to bring His justice, and people who have sinned have to pay. They have to pay. They have to repay God. There's retribution to be demanded. And therefore, in verse 19, it says, you can't stop this justice. You can't stop this judgment because he will come like a pent-up flood. Right? So the image here is like of a, a wall of water which is rushing down at you or like a tsunami coming at you. Now, if you were to stand before a tsunami, can you stop the water? No, right? You, you can't stop the, the water of a tsunami flowing towards you. And that's what this passage is saying. He's saying God's judgment is such that as He brings justice into the world, it is like a tsunami sweeping across the whole world from the east to the west, and you can't stand before it. There's nothing you can do to stand up to this body of, of judgment that's coming. And I think taken together, it is a very fearsome picture of God as judge. He is angry. He is dressed as a warrior to bring justice. He judges with righteousness. He judges from east to west. Everybody has to repay all their sins. And it's coming like a wall of water, a tsunami. And what it's really trying to do is to create in us fear. It's, it's, it's trying to, as we read this passage, we have to say to ourselves, this is a fearsome picture and we want to avoid this, this justice and this judgment that is coming. So in chapter 63, so I want you to turn to me to chapter 63, the picture continues to develop on this idea of God as judge. So in chapter 63, again, if you look at the passage very closely at me, he begins by saying, Who is coming from Edom, from Bozra, with his garment-stained chrism? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Now, if chapter 59 is like a top-down view, Right, then chapter 63 is like the ground level view. It's a bit like, you know, you watch a football game 
And then you've got one camera which is very high up, and then you see like all the players on the ground running around like ants, right? Sort of thing, you know, like they. And then the commentators, you know, circling things and saying, you know, oh, they're attacking down the right hand wing, they're getting more, more joy down the center of the park, whatever. But then now, in chapter 63, it's more like the ground level view, right? It's like, what does judgment look like from the ground, not from the top? And so it gives you the perspective of a watchman on a watchtower in God's city in Jerusalem. And he sees this mysterious character coming from the south, from Edom, from Bozrah, right? He's coming up and there's this strange character coming and he's described in three ways. First up, he's described as royalty, right? He's dressed in, in splendor, he's robed in splendor. And he's mighty, he's striding forward in greatness of strength. But the observation that attracts our attention, or his attention, is that his garments are stained crimson. Okay, so stained crimson, if you look at this picture, okay, it's like, uh, you, it's not that your clothes are like, okay, my, it's not as if my clothes are blue, right? Stained crimson is the idea where there's a stain. So, you know, like last week, uh, Dan, uh, we had this couple from our church who got married called uh, Daniel Xiaoqing. Oh, before, before, yeah. Daniel Xiaoqing, right? And, um, and so, as in every, uh, wedding lunch, they always have different food, lah. So, nowadays I noticed they always have these, individual food carts, right? So usually the food carts, laksa. La. So I, I refused to eat the laksa because last time I ate laksa, I, 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 you know, with my nice suit and everything after officiating the wedding, I always spill stuff on myself, right? You know, because the, the noodles drop from your mouth or whatever and it splashes on you. So that's the picture that is being seen here that the watchman sees this person coming. He's dressed and royalty. He's powerful. But hey, how come... His shirt, his clothes are stained red, crimson, right? It says there, right? Stained crimson. So the, 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 the watchman asked the question in verse two, why are your garments red like those of one treading the wine press? So in the ancient world, uh, they used to make wine the old fashioned way. Okay. So what people used to do the old fashioned way is they used to collect the grapes and they used to put it in this uh, big uh, vat, right? Either they create it out of the ground, or they, you know, make wooden ones above ground or whatever. Then they put all the grapes there. Then what you do? You hold on to these ropes and you start stepping on all the grapes so that you crush all the 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 juice out of the grapes, right? So the next slide. So all the okay doesn't look very hygienic, right? but but okay. So anyway, so all the grape juice comes out, and then you make your wine. So he's thinking, okay, your clothes are stained crimson because you have been stepping in the wine press of grapes. So I presume this is a very common thing, right? People go and step on the wine press. They step, step, step. The grape juice gets splattered on you. Then your clothes get stained red. But actually, what we are given is a really horrific picture in verse 3 to 6. And verse 3 to 6 really require a lot of investigation because there are a lot of repeated words and ideas there. So in verse 3 it says, I have trodden the winepress alone for the nations 
From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger. Oh, I took up some verses, but you have to look in your Bible. I trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The day for me to redeem had come. I looked, and there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me. And from my wrath, my own wrath, sorry, my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger and my wrath. I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Now the red or the crimson on this stranger's clothes is not from grape juice, but it's actually from blood, right? I mean, this is like a horror movie, right? This is the stuff of, of horror. And it comes because He's, in a sense, this is terrible, horrific imagery of the trampling of people in the winepress of judgment. Now you can see from these verses that the, the words keep being repeated, trampling and wrath, right? So these are the two things that we're meant to get out of this image, right? This horrible image of the trampling of people in justice and the wrath of the motivation of wrath and anger of the judgment to come. Now, I think that these two images are very, very significant because in the New Testament, we are, these two themes of blood and trampling and wrath are also repeated in the picture of the last judgment. So Revelation chapter 14, okay, the, the text is really small, the next slide. Uh, so you need to look at your Bibles. But you can see the same horrific image, right? So it is not a, an image which is just taken out once and never heard of again. This is the reality of the Day of Judgment. So in chapter 14, it says, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. So we know Jesus is like a son of man. With a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap for the time to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And still another angel who, char- who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him with the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vines, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. So again, in Revelation chapter 19, it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. 
He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So you can see that in the New Testament, this vision of the winepress and the trodding and blood and wrath and fury are the real pictures, the reality of judgment on the last day. And it's meant to strike fear in us to say, well, we don't want to end up like that, right? We don't want to be subject to the fury of God and to be trampled and trodden on in justice. Now, there's a very strange uh, phrase here, right? The last part. King of kings and lord of lords. Okay, so I want you to pay attention to this phrase. This is the second time we're reading it, right? King of kings and lord of lords. Because in Revelation chapter 17, just... Two chapters earlier, it says, They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. Now, isn't it really remarkable, right, when you think about it, that this great judge who judges the world and tramples on them is also the Lamb of God. Right, so the Lamb of God who dies for the sins of the world is the very same one who judges the world with such horrific consequences. Okay, so Jesus is both the Lamb who dies for the world and also the angry warrior judge. But as we read Isaiah, this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because when we read back in Isaiah, we already know that the suffering servant Jesus comes, uh, the next slide, Right, he comes in justice, but he also comes in Isaiah chapter 53 to take our sins as the suffering servant. And I think that as we have this very, very strange paradox, we have a choice, isn't it? You either receive Jesus as the lamb or you receive Jesus as the warrior judge. You either receive Jesus as the suffering servant, or you receive Jesus as the servant who brings justice. And that's the choice before us, right? Because as we fear judgment, then we are all the more quick to run to Jesus as the lamb who dies for our sins, as the savior suffering servant. So if you turn with me back to chapter 59, turn with me back to 59, which is up here also, you'll see that suddenly, Within this horror of chapter 59, it says, in verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion and those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. Right? The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. Now, as we read through chapter 59, this is kind of like a shock, isn't it? Because you have all these terrible images of judgment, right? Anger, wrath, Repayment, retribution, the warrior, judge, the tsunami of judgment coming from east to west. And all of a sudden you have this word, the Redeemer. Now, 
the redeemer is someone who redeems people and redeeming people is what salvation is all about. See, what does it mean to redeem? So in the ancient world, we already said it before, people went to war and when you won the war, you collect all the survivors as your slaves. Okay, so the, the injured soldiers, their families, their children, they all become your slaves, the spoils of war. And as slaves, they can work in your farm so you can sell them. But, but sometimes, you know, these slaves are more valuable to the people that you just defeated. Maybe their, their families want to buy them back. Maybe they are royalty. Maybe they are important to the country. So instead of working them as slaves, because they're not going to be very good working for you if they are you know, not very strong anyway, better to sell them back to where you, you, you defeated them from, isn't it? And to, to set these people free from slavery, you have to redeem them. You have to pay money. You have to pay something valuable in order to set them free. And that's what redemption means. That's what it means to redeem. And that's what is being spoken of here in verse 20. That in the midst of all this judgment, a person will come to redeem people, to set people free, to pay a price, to set them free from the bondage and slavery to sin and to judgment. And this is exactly the idea of what Jesus is doing. Isn't it? He's, when he dies as the lamb, when he dies as a suffering servant, he redeems people out of sin. He redeems people out of repaying uh, the justice that they should pay. But the key really here is that they need to repent. It is only through repentance that we receive Jesus as the Redeemer. It is only through repentance that we receive Jesus as the Lamb. So the choice we hope for us is very clear, isn't it? Do you want to receive Jesus as the Redeemer? Or do you want to receive Jesus as the Judge? Do you want to face Jesus as the warrior judge or to receive Jesus as the Lamb of God? And that's why in verse 19, it says very interestingly, right, that from west to east, some people will fear the name of the Lord, whereas some will revere His glory. See, to fear is negative, right? I fear you. I, I, there's horror. I'm scared of you. To revere is to honor you and to worship you. So those who receive Jesus as their Redeemer, as their Lamb, they can revere God. But for those who reject the Lamb, instead they will fear God. And that's why John chapter 3, which is one of the most famous verses in the Bible, right? it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. But in the last verse of that chapter, it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Why? For God's wrath remains on Him. They have not been redeemed. The suffering servant has not taken on their sins. The Lamb of God, Jesus, has not died and given His blood for them. So, as we've read today's passage, how will you respond to the judgment of God? 
Will you respond with fear or will you respond with repentance so that the Lamb of God, Jesus, will take away God's wrath from you? So in conclusion, uh, I remember when I became a Christian, I uh, read the Bible for a few weeks with uh, someone when I was at university and after a while we were going through a gospel and I, I recognized that God's word in the Bible was, was true and reliable. So it didn't really mean anything to me, but I remember I was lying in bed. It was, I think, Friday night. Uh, and, uh, and I was thinking to myself, okay, if the Bible is true, then what the Bible says about judgment must be true too. And if judgment is coming, and I'm lying here in bed right now, God is really, really angry with me. Right, and if I, you know, I was very morbid. If I die here tonight in my sleep, then I will have to face God's wrath and anger. And I was thinking to myself. I was thinking, you know, if my boss is angry with me, I will very urgently try to make things right with my boss. Right? If, if, if my teacher was angry with me, rightly angry for something I'd done wrong, then I would like to make things right with the teacher. Right? If, if the judge was angry with me, I'd also like to get things fixed. And therefore, how much more if God were really, really angry with me because I had rightly done, you know, I, I really, really done all these things that were wrong that he was going to judge righteously. Then I needed to get things made right before him. And I wanted to do it before I fell asleep because I was worried that if I fell asleep, you know, I might die and then face judgment, right? So I thought, okay, I must accept Jesus because if I don't accept Jesus, before I sleep, then, then, then I'm not right with God. He's still angry with me right at this very present moment. I need Jesus to redeem me from my sins, to pay for my sins, so that I can be right with God. So like I said earlier on, right, fear is a good thing. So do you really fear God the judge? Do you really fear God's justice? Do you see the horror of that day when God's justice comes. Because it is coming. And in order to avoid it, what you really need to do is you need to repent and accept Jesus so that He has redeemed you and paid for your sins and you are now right with God. See, like what this evangelist said, I'm not trying to scare you, right? But actually, God is telling you the realities to scare you. And He's scaring you for a good reason. He's carrying you so that you will run to Jesus and hold on to Jesus to repent because that is the only way you can be right with God and, and God's wrath and anger at your sin taken off you. So I hope that as we reflect on today's passage, we will see, and, and not just in our minds, but feel in our hearts uh, the real horror of judgment so that we will truly repent and hold on even more to Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Okay, dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for your word in Isaiah chapter 59 and 63. We, we really come before you and, 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 tell, and want to tell you that it's a truly horrific, awful reality. Help us to see that this is the reality for every single person who is born 
from east to west, because you are God, who is a righteous judge, you are a fearsome judge. Judgment will be like trampling, there will be blood, there will be great wrath. So, dear Father, as we as we reflect on the reality of that judgment, help us to make the right decision, the only logical decision, to heed our fear and to repent and to hold on to Jesus as our sacrifice, as our Redeemer, who is paid to set us free from your wrath, as the Lamb of God who has died for our sins. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.